0: Care dot com slash weight loss
2: testing one, two, one, two. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Killer One. My name is and I am your host, and it is Friday. I'm actually recording on a Friday. I don't know if I'll get it out on a Friday, but I am actually recording on a Friday, and that is a big step for me, folks, so I'm really, I'm really excited about that. So first up, we're going to jump into the news, which is going to be really quick because there just wasn't a whole lot of news that you would want to sink your th- teeth into, to be honest, so I'm just going to go over the hits. And then we're going to jump right into Rivian's earnings call. Let's start off with some Neo news. Neo has officially produced their first batch of ET7s. The ET7 is their luxury sedan. Deliveries will start in China on March 28th. And then the other European countries that Rivian, excuse me, Neo operates in, they'll get the ET7 sometime after that. I think it was last week we talked about the rumor that Ford or the leak that the Ford F-150 Lightning Standard Range would have a official EPA range of 230 miles. At that time, that was a rumor. Ford has come out and they have confirmed the range for all of the F-150 Lightning Variants. So first up, we're gonna start with the standard range variants, which include the Pro, XLT, and Lariat standard range. They all have 230 miles. For the extended range versions, you have the Pro, XLT, and Lariat. Those are gonna have 320 miles, which is pretty good. The Platinum F-150 Lightning will have 300 miles, and the Pro fleet model will have 320 miles. The average person can't buy the fleet model, Only, you know, fleets can buy the fleet model. So that's a really good range. I wish that would, I wish we could get that in the pro version, but apparently Ford's not going to offer that to normal human beings. Nikola Motors has started production on the first battery electric Nikola tray. This is a semi truck. It's not hydrogen. Nikola was big into hydrogen, but not with the tray. It's actually going to be battery powered, which is pretty cool. They have even delivered 18 of their pre-production vehicles. This vehicle has an estimated range of 350 miles, which makes it really good for short to medium hauls, which is a good thing because there is no place to sleep in the back of this truck. So there's no sleeper. It's just you come to work, you drive the truck, you go home, and then the next day you come back to work. The vehicle is capable of charging from 10 to 80% in about 100 minutes with a DC fast charger of 350 kilowatts. If you have the smaller 175 kilowatt charger, it is 200 minutes. I was not able to locate any reliable source for what the current price of this vehicle is, so I didn't include it, but just to let you know. LG will build a $1.4 billion EV factory in Queen Creek, Arizona. Just imagine how... (laughs) How many times it took me to say Queen Creek correctly? Um, Anyway, Queen Creek is not far from where I live, uh, so that's pretty cool. They're going to break ground in the Q2 of 2022, and the plant should be operational sometime in 2024. Along the same lines, CATL is looking for a site in North America to build a $5 billion battery plant, which is really cool. I'm going to make a suggestion here, and I suggest Manitoba, Canada. Um, And while we're on the subject of Manitoba, Canada, check out True North EVs with James, who is a listener of this show, and he's been on the show before. On the latest episode, James talks to Ken from the EV Revolution show. So check it out. It sounds really good. James upgraded some equipment, and it sounds better than this podcast. Electrify America is showing off a new charging station concept. These stations will feature next-gen chargers with better displays and cable management, solar canopies, uh, customer lounges, event spaces. For some reason, security cameras was mentioned in the amenities, which I think, you know, cool. We kind of expect that they would be there anyway, but um, I don't know if I would count that as an amenity. Uh, That's going to be located near or at shopping center locations. Valet charging, which is pretty cool and curbside delivery. So if you're at the mall in, let's say Glendale, Arizona, and you get your car charged and you don't want to walk to the end of the other end of the parking lot when it's 120 degrees outside, they'll bring the car to you, which I think is a very nice service and something that I would pay for in the summertime. And finally, in our regular EV news, the state of Georgia, which is the new location of Rivian's next automotive plant has decided not to let Rivian and other EV manufacturers sell cars directly to consumers in the state. Now, this isn't a new ruling. This is actually an existing ruling, but there were two bills that were going through the state legislature that were basically killed. So two bills that would allow them to do this, and now those bills have been killed. I'm sure at some point in time, they'll live to see another day just in a different form. I, I I don't think this issue is dead is what I'm saying there poorly. I'm saying that poorly. Interestingly enough, though, Tesla can sell their vehicles directly to customers in Georgia, but only in a handful of locations. It's like five locations statewide, which Georgia is in a super huge state. So five locations is probably enough. Um, but yeah, somehow Tesla worked a, oh, <laughs> worked its way around the exemption. Speaking of Tesla, let's move on to some Tesla news. Gigafest is scheduled for April 7th at Giga Texas in Austin, and it's expected to bring in 15,000 participants. There have been a handful of concerns from the local people who live in that area over noise complaints because of some firework testing and other concerns that are expected when 15,000 people converge on a relatively small location. Tesla has said that 30% of the event will be held inside the factory. I'm going to guess that's for factory tours, and 70% will be held outside. They are working with local officials with the fireworks and noise complaints and all the other stuff that goes with that, and I'm sure it won't be a big deal, but there are people who do have some concerns, so I thought I would mention it. And if you're waiting on an invitation and you haven't received one yet, good news, because as of this recording, Tesla hasn't sent any of them out, so... Uh, I'm still holding out hope that I'll receive an invitation and maybe I'll take a trip to Austin. Who knows? That'll, that'll have, that, that largely depends on <laughs> how I spring that on my wife. Personally, I'm thinking of just calling her from Texas and letting her know that it won't be home f- until the next day. That's, that's my plan. I'll let you know how it works out. If, uh, if it comes to that, anyway, Tesla is considering developing a manganese based battery for their vehicles. And with the cost of raw materials skyrocketing, this is not a surprise that uh, EV manufacturers in general are looking at other uh, battery chemistries. So this makes total sense to me. Let's see here. Tesla is hoping to complete development of the Cybertruck in 2022 so they can begin production in 2023. I share in their hope. I hope they can also complete development in 2022 so they can begin production in 2023. I also hope they can, you know, maintain the promised prices. Uh, I, I'm i very skeptical, as I mentioned last week about this, but fingers, toes, ankles, everything's crossed on me right now. Hertz rental car ordered 100,000 Model Ys, some of which will actually be available to rent in April of 2022. So that's pretty cool. This is similar to the announcement that Hertz made in 2021 of 100,000 Model 3s. So I don't have much more to say on this other than I'm looking forward to renting one of those two cars because I've checked here in Phoenix and they're just not available. So I I would imagine that Phoenix is probably a fairly... uh, busy market for rental car companies, but they're not available. My final story is one of those stories that makes me very angry. Someone rented a Model S and this Model S was used on a public street to perform a very dangerous stunt. So this stunt was actually a jump. So they were on um, a, a public street and there was a hill. The Model Y started at the top of the hill, um, gained an incredible amount of speed and and then, as they they came down the hill, there was another part of the road that made like this little jump. I'm not explaining this very well at all. And they jumped this Model S, and they got some pretty serious air. And when the Model S landed, it actually ended up hitting a car and totaling it. It looked like it hit several cars, but it definitely totaled one uh, vehicle, which is sucks for the person who owned that vehicle. But more than that, they were operating on a public street. If somebody was walking their dog with their kid, it doesn't really matter. They could have seriously maimed or killed a passerby or themselves for that matter. Um, it was extraordinarily stupid, like stupid on a completely different level. And as somebody who has responded to these calls where somebody is doing st- something really stupid and they end up killing somebody else, uh, because they're doing this stupid thing, somebody who has nothing to do—they're just minding their own business—and they, one minute they're there, the next minute they are not. Um, I I hope that the driver of this vehicle and everyone who was involved is tried fairly. And if they're found guilty, they are punished to the full extent, the maximum penalty available in California, because uh, this was extremely dangerous. And let's just start with, you know, hit and run for starters. Anyway, this video was uploaded to YouTube and TikTok. Stories aren't matching up. People are saying that they weren't involved who are actually there. It it, it doesn't really matter. The cops are going to find out who did this. And once they do, um, I, I really hope that they are, are punished, um, accordingly. All right. Now, having said that, I'm not very good at segues. So let's go ahead and jump into the Rivion earnings call. Before we do that real quick, I just want to say, if you want to support this show and you like what I'm doing, go to, uh, supportkilowatt.com or patreon.com forward slash kilowatt. And for a dollar, All the ads are taken out of the show and you get an ad-free experience. And then you also, you know, have that nice fuzzy feeling in your tummy that you've supported me and this show. All the money goes back into the show. None of the money goes into my own pocket for living expenses or anything like that. It all goes toward the show. Okay. Now let's get into the Rivian earnings call. It's going to start with RJ Skrange's opening remarks. I heavily edited this. I'm just letting you know. Um... He starts out by asking people to read the shareholder letter, which I did not include in that. He also says that Rivian stands with the Ukraine cut all that stuff out. Those are just some notable things. Um, the executives on this call really they really don 't answer the analyst's questions they they kind of answer around the question. But they don't answer the questions, their questions directly. And I actually thought that that was kind of a a frustrating thing on, on my part as a listener. Now I'm not a shareholder in Rivian. I'm not an analyst or an investor. I'm not even, you know, qualified to really even talk about much of the financial stuff that goes on in these earnings calls. But, um, I do know that when the analysts, repeatedly, multiple analysts repeatedly answer this or ask the same question. They just rephrase it and they really push uh, the Rivian execs. All the Rivian execs do is they stay on message, they talk around the answer and they don't directly answer the question, which to me um, is frustrating. But I cut a lot of that stuff out so you don't have to deal with it. I left some of it in so you get a little bit of hint of, of what how the earnings call went. But in general, I tried to cut out as much of that non-essential stuff as possible. So um, it starts off with RJ Scurringe going over the pricing kerfuffle. And uh, by the way, when I was writing this, I didn't know how to spell kerfuffle. Now I do. Uh, This clip is going to be about nine minutes long. So I will see you on the other side.
3: We released an update to our R1 product portfolio that included our new dual motor propulsion system, as well as our standard battery pack. The dual-motor propulsion system consists of a single-motor drive axle where we've integrated the drive unit, the inverter, the gearbox into a really power-dense package. And in the dual-motor application, we put one of those in the front and one of those in the rear of the vehicle. And in total, it delivers over 600 horsepower and achieves 0 to 60 in less than 4 seconds. It's really cool. Uh, We also use that drive unit, in a single motor application as a front drive unit in our commercial delivery vans. Along with that, our standard battery pack is leveraging LFP and LFP chemistry, and that chemistry not only allows us to offer that pack at a lower cost, but it really fits commercial applications well, and it's first going to be launched in the commercial vehicle platform later this year, and then will make its way into our consumer vehicles uh, by late 2023. Uh, now, as we developed these new offerings, uh, we needed to make sure that these offerings could fit into our product portfolio. And to do that, we revisited the overall pricing strategy. Prior to the pricing changes, our R1 platform had a price range without options of 67,500 to 83,500, and only included quad motor variants. With the addition of these new product offerings, the r the R1 platform's price range is now 67,500 to 95,000 including both quad and dual-motor configurations, as well as the standard range uh, LFP battery pack. On March 1st, we announced the dual-motor and standard battery pack along with this updated pricing model. In applying the updated pricing to existing creator customers, we failed to appreciate that customers viewed their configuration as price-locked, and we wrongly assumed creator customers would be open to reconfiguring to the recently announced dual-motor, and standard battery pack if they wanted to maintain a similar price point to the original configuration. We recognize this was a mistake and quickly moved to honor the original configured pricing for our pre-March 1st pre-orders. Our relationship with customers is the most important aspect of what we're building, and we believe our early customers are critical for establishing the brand foundation needed to support many millions of sales across our future vehicle portfolio. Since launching in 2018, We believe the brand loyalty we have forged is one of our most valuable assets and something we believe will continue to drive network effects moving forward. With this, we remain highly confident in our ability to address the massive market opportunity that sits before us. Electrification is at a tipping point as trillions of miles traveled each year across the planet transition to EVs. This is a massive shift and one that requires multiple companies to be successful in building interesting products that give customers lots of choices. While the near term industry conditions remain very fluid, our path to creating long term value is unchanged. We are targeting the most attractive market segments with exceptional products. In the consumer space, we're building a global brand that applies to a wide range of product sizes and markets in the truck, SUV, and crossover segments. In the commercial space, we're targeting with an initial we're launching with an initial focus on last mile delivery through our partnership with Amazon and will use this critical scale to support growth across the commercial space. We are in a unique position to establish significant last mile market share through our Amazon partnership and have the opportunity to capitalize on software and services through OS. As of March 8th, we had approximately 83,000 pre-orders. Our pricing model, which encompasses the dual motor drivetrain and standard pack has demonstrated continued strong demand. With pre-orders following the pricing update remaining at approximately the same rate as prior to the announcement. Not surprisingly, our highest priority for the remainder of 2022 is ramping production of our normal Illinois manufacturing facility. As of March 8th, we've produced 1,410 vehicles this quarter and 2,425 vehicles since the start of production late last year. During the last two weeks, we've averaged a weekly production rate that is approximately two times the xr rate of the fourth quarter of 2021, With that, I'd like to talk a bit about uh, the R1 production ramp. This ramp's progressing well across all areas of the R1 production line, and we're achieving demonstrated production rates that are in line with our expectations. And with all this progress, the, the biggest constraints we now face really lie with the supply chain, and it's really a small number of parts for which the supplier isn't ramping at the same rate as our production lines are ramping up. Uh, I want to talk just about one specific area. Previously, we talked about battery modules. And this was a constraint that we saw at various times through Q4. And as you may remember, we have two module lines, module line one, module line two. And module line one is now running at twice the speed at what we saw at the end of 2021. And module line two is ramping up very quickly uh, and in line with our expectations. With line one and line two now ramping, Battery modules are no longer a constraint for the plant. With that, I also want to talk about R1S, and R1S is being ramped very methodically. We learned a lot from what we went through in the fourth quarter, and as we're methodically ramping this up, we're balancing component supply for the parts that are different on R1S relative to R1T, and we're also managing the fact that that product is coming up behind the R1T in terms of its level of, of ramp maturity to make sure that we're optimizing for overall production output for the line. Now with that said, we should also talk about EDV. And the EDV ramp is quite a bit different than what we've been through on R1. It benefits from all the learnings you'd expect from the EDV line really being our second production line. Operationally, the line is ramping as intended without any major surprises or roadblocks. But as we've seen with R1, we are gated by a number of supplier ramp challenges. And given that the EDV production lines are capable of ramping faster than what we saw with R1, these supply constraints feel more pronounced than what we experienced in the initial weeks of ramping R1. With these supply constraints, the EDVs being built are being used to refine the digital integration of our software systems with Amazon to ensure alignment with the standard standard operating procedures for these vehicles feedback from Amazon and the drivers on the software is quickly being ingested and we're using that to drive the OTAs on the platform. With all this, we expect EDB production to ramp considerably during Q2. Now it's worth noting the challenges our suppliers are facing vary and include company specific production issues, COVID related delays, and semiconductor allocations. We're working closely with any of these constrained suppliers to identify component challenges early that we can support the supplier ramp and develop alternative solutions if needed. While the 2022 production ramp is a core focus from an operational point of view, our future technology and product pipeline are also really exciting. Uh, as a preview of some of the major initiatives, we're developing a proprietary 800-volt architecture, which includes new in-house drive units that will further enhance performance and efficiency of our announced dual and quad motor configurations. This higher-voltage architecture also includes onboard charger, DC-DC converter, and DC-AC to converter, where the power stages of the DC-AC and the AC-DC are bidirectional and share semiconductors, magnetics, and the controller. Uh, we're also developing a heat-pump-based thermal system, and along with that, a range of new battery packs, including what I talked about before, the LFP chemistry, uh, an LFP chemistry being used within these packs. Now, beyond the in-vehicle power electronics, we also continue to develop our portfolio of charging and energy products uh, to expand really beyond what we've already talked about and shown in our DC chargers to include a bi-directional home charger and home energy products. And the technology work isn't just focused on propulsion platforms or charging or power electronics. We're also developing an improved network architecture and the associated electronics topology to consolidate multiple compute platforms for reduced cost and complexity.
2: First up, I, I don't know about you, but I, I didn't, that didn't sound much like an apology to uh, reservation holders. And maybe in the, in the letters they sent out, maybe they did apologize, but um, it sounded like an explanation for sure. So let's jump into it. Um, I think it's interesting that they're going to start using LFP batteries and the dual motor upgrades, which I think is uh reasonable standard LFP packs. Those are going to almost certainly be a cost saving move because of the, you know, the, the higher prices for raw materials, especially for batteries, new 800 volt system, bi-directional home charger is pretty cool. I'm not sure what they mean by home energy products. Is it solar? Is it battery? Is it a rat on a wheel? Is it a combination of all three? I don't know. Um, it sounds like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds like if you configured your vehicle before March 1st, then you get the vehicle the way it was configured, not with the updated, not with the updates that they, they wanted to push on people with the R1T and the R1S, which I think is true. I think that's the case. I wasn't able to really find um, that information that definitively said that, but I think that's that's the case, which is, I, I think, fine. Um, I really think they should have just offered people like the existing reservation holders the choice to like, hey, we have this new shiny product over here. Would you like to would you like to upgrade to this or do you want to keep your current configuration? And then everything would have been fine. Uh, let's see. Pre-orders about the same as prior to the, high, the the price hike. And then the R1 production ramp they have. They're really singing throughout this whole uh, earnings call. They they really sing the supply chain blues on this. And then they're applying the lessons from the R1T and that'll move over to the R1S. So that sounds reasonable. Next is Claire McDonough. She's the CFO. Actually, I thought she did a really good job of uh, being informative. She gave real numbers, which most CFOs just say refer to our earnings report. Um, It's mostly free of fluff. So let's go ahead and listen.
4: I'll start with a review of our fourth quarter 2021 results. After years of development and design, 2021 was an important year for Rivian as we launched three vehicles across two vehicle platforms and initiated our first customer deliveries. During the fourth quarter, we produced 1,003 vehicles and delivered 909 vehicles, which generated $54 million of revenue. As we've discussed in the past, as we ramp our production, the volumes being produced on our manufacturing lines are a small fraction of our current 150,000 units of annual capacity. In the near term, we expect this dynamic of high fixed costs associated with operating and running our large-scale, highly vertically integrated plant, amortized over a small but growing number of vehicles, produced across the R1 and RCB platforms, will continue to have a negative drag on gross profit. In addition, we experienced higher costs due to inflation and supply chain challenges, which resulted in increased bill of materials and higher logistics costs associated with expediting shipping of certain parts. As a result, in the fourth quarter, we generated a negative gross profit of $383 million. Additionally, we recorded a lower of cost or net realizable value LCNRV adjustment to write down the value of certain inventory to the amount we anticipate receiving upon vehicle sale after considering future costs necessary to ready the inventory for sale. This expense negatively impacted gross profit in the fourth quarter, and we expect it to also impact upcoming quarters in the near term. Turning to operating expenses, Research and development expense for the quarter was $726 million as compared to $255 million in the fourth quarter of 2020. The increased spend stemmed from our current and future vehicle programs as well as cross-platform technology. As RJ mentioned, we have kicked off our in-house motor system, standard range LFP battery pack, Rivian Cloud Architecture and many other hardware and software technologies that will allow us to introduce more accessible price points, improve growth margins, and enable us to expand our high-margin, lifetime software and services revenue opportunity. Finally, we realized stock-based compensation expense of $277 million in the fourth quarter of 2021. As a reminder, our stock-based compensation vesting conditions Were deemed probable at IPO, resulting in the recognition of our first stock-based compensation expense in Q4 2021. SG&A expense for the fourth quarter of 2021 was $682 million, as compared to $98 million for the fourth quarter of 2020. As we scale our production, it's important we also scale our commercial operations, providing a seamless, comprehensive, consumer solution is part of what customers expect when purchasing a Rivian vehicle. This requires investments in our digital experience, customer engagement and delivery teams, service operations, and customer-facing facilities and events. In addition, we continue to focus on attracting new talent that will help us grow and reach our long-term objectives we realized $277 million in stock-based compensation associated with sg In Q4 2021, we also recorded other expense of $663 million. The, this primarily non-cash expense represents the accounting for the 8 million shares of Class A common stock and $20 million of cash that was donated to Forever by Rivian, Inc. in conjunction with our IPO. Our capital expenditures for the fourth quarter were $455 million, driven by our continued strategic investments in infrastructure. The capital expenditures were primarily due to expansion of our normal factory, as well as investments in corporate facilities, service operations, and experience spaces. We have created a tremendous ecosystem, bringing together our in-vehicle technology, the Rivian Cloud and our product development and operations infrastructure that support our launch products and services and build the foundation for growth. We are at the tipping point of the EV transformation. We play in the fastest growing and most profitable market segment and will continue to scale our offerings with new price points, use cases, and form factors. During the fourth quarter, we completed our initial public offering which provided us capital to help execute our near-term roadmap. We ended the year with $18.4 billion of cash on hand, which includes restricted cash. As we look forward to 2022, I wanted to reiterate our excitement for the opportunities ahead and continued improvement in the areas of our business that we can control. Our primary focus will be to ramp our normal facility and the production of our R1 and RCD platforms. While we work diligently to alleviate any supply chain challenges, we believe that through 2022, the supply chain will be the fundamental limiting factor to our total output for the year. We believe our normal facility, manufacturing equipment and processes have the ability to produce approximately 50,000 vehicles across our R1 and RCV platforms in 2022 if we were not constrained by our supply chain. Our confidence comes from weeks of batch building that have proven our processes and equipment are ramping as we had expected and intended. Despite this, due to the supply chain constraints, which are currently visible to us, in 2022, we plan to produce 25,000 vehicles across our R1 and RCD platforms. Our estimated adjusted EBITDA for 2022 is negative $4.75 billion dollars primarily due to continued forward investment. We will increase our research and development expense through investments in future vehicle platforms, vertical integration of shared technologies, as well as our in-vehicle and Rivian Cloud technology roadmap. Our SG&A expense will increase primarily due to expected investments in our technology and commercial organization. As more of our vehicles hit the road, it's important we continue to invest in all aspects of our business, that makes the digital-first ownership experience seamless and enjoyable. We plan to continue investing in our business throughout 2022, and therefore expect an increase in capital expenditures as compared to 2021. Capital expenditures are expected to be $2.6 billion, driven by additional investment in our normal factory to expand the capacity of our R1 line to over 100,000 units annually. In addition, we expect to realize increased capital spend associated with the tooling for current vehicle platforms, future vehicle manufacturing lines, battery technology and supply, our service network, digital offering, and general technology.
2: So, again, I thought she was very informative, and uh this was a, a great update. I thought it was better than RJ's update, to be honest with you. She does mention that Rivian is doing all of these cool things to make more accessible vehicles. Does that mean more affordable vehicles? Because that would be something I'd be interested in. Um And then... They said that they could produce 50,000 vehicles in 2022 if there wasn't supply chain issues. I think it's a little um strange that because there is supply chain issues, they can produce exactly half of, of 50,000 at 25,000. That seems weird. Um You would think that that number would actually, and maybe it does, but you would think that number would actually reflect what's in the supply chain and what they can get their hands on during that time. So... This, this half thing just seems like it's off the, off the cuff and not based on real numbers, but I could be wrong. Again, I'm not a math magician, so I wouldn't know these things, um, like a, like an actual CFO would. All right, let's jump to the analyst questions. And I skipped, like I said before, I skipped a lot of these questions because one, they are, some of them were already answered in the opening remarks. And then, and Rivian gave no additional information, but the first one is on uh, supply chain. And I, I thought it was interesting. So, um, I, I left it in. So you're going to gonna get a little bit of that, of what I was talking about before where it's just, they ask a question and the, the answer, the Rivian exec- executives answer around the question. They don't, they don't specifically answer the question.
1: Just on the supplier issues, I understand the types of things that you're doing to help suppliers, but can you give us a sense of the visibility um, into bringing those constrained suppliers into where they need to be so the, the suppliers of semis and wire harnesses and electronics that they're an issue are they are they giving you a a uh, kind of a high confidence schedule at this point and and uh, just give us a sense of the you know what what that what that looks like.
3: Yeah, thanks, Rod. It, it really depends on the, the commodity area and on the supplier. Uh, and something like a wire harness or uh, an ECU that's being built at a CM, at a contract manufacturer, uh, in those situations, we have teams that are on site. We have very, uh, you know, incredibly high, an incredible high level of visibility into their operations, into the, into the way in which they're running their business. Uh, and we have very close and transparent relationships with them, and on those uh, we're able to essentially build crisp line of sight over the next um, you know several quarters of production. Now, with that said, uh, the challenge within the semiconductor space is there's a lot more uh, there's a lot more unknowns there, and uh, it's very different than let's say a wire harness production facility where we can put team members on the ground at the wire harness facility where we can actually help, we can actually assess. Um, we're not able to send folks into foundries or send folks into uh, semiconductor manufacturing sites to do the same type of hands-on uh, support and or auditing. So in that regard, uh, I, I'm spending a lot of time and the rest of our uh, senior leadership team is spending a lot of time with our semiconductor suppliers and making sure we're securing the right allocation. And that allocation, as we start to get into higher uh, higher production rates, especially in the back half of this year, is where we've um, where we see risk and it's it's what's caused us to make the adjustments uh, to what we're guiding to in terms of in terms of production for this year. but I want to be very, very clear uh, we are pushing very hard on those suppliers, and if any of those suppliers are listening in here, uh, you're going to continue to those suppliers will continue to hear from us, and we're going to be continuing to push very hard to get those numbers as high as possible because they are constraining us and it, it's quite painful when we see our production plant. Uh, really ramping and the lines running as we intend uh, to, to have to throttle production because of those shortages of those parts. So so this is something we're we're laser focused on, uh, you know, a morning doesn't go by where it's not a, a topic of a conversation uh, for us as a management team.
2: Everybody's laser focused nowadays, it turns out. Can you imagine speaking this way to your spouse or your partner um, when they come home from work and they ask you what you did for the day? I'm not even going to attempt it because I would fail miserably. But if I talk this way to my wife, she would get me checked for a stroke. So <laughs> it's just so funny that this is, I, I can't imagine that they talk this way at work like 24 seven, but maybe they do. Maybe this is just second nature to them. So the guy initially answering or asking the questions, excuse me, he asked the same question again, three more times. And he rephrased each question in a way that so that he could get a direct answer. And all he got back was exec speak, stay on message, don't go off message. So that was a little frustrating. Let's go ahead and jump into our next question.
1: Relative to the earlier planned 17 to 20 percent price increase for current reservation holders, is this price increase needed to offset inflationary pressure since the time of the IPO in order to meet the financial expectations? you may have had at that time. Uh, and does that imply then that margin might now be lower than previously contemplated, at least until such time as you begin selling uh, the new orders that you take at the higher price? Uh, and does this mean that uh, prices yeah, in the out years will now uh, be higher than previously contemplated, which could imply that volumes might be uh, lower than previously contemplated, or or maybe because there's a, a general inflationary environment, including for battery metals and, and competitor vehicles too, that does that kind of offset the impact of volume. How are you thinking about these different factors?
4: Sure, as as you as your question indicates, there are many different factors that are driving um, what we have both experienced over the last handful of months uh, in regards to the inflationary pressures, you know, in the market. Um, But I I think, as as you heard in in John's question as well, right, there is still a a phenomenal value proposition for the vehicles, even at the revised pricing levels that that we've put out uh, to the market, uh, which, again, is, as as RJ mentioned and and touched upon, is really reinforced uh, by the overall demand that we've seen uh, post-pricing increase, you know, for those vehicles across the board. And as we think about, you know, what's changed um, since that time of of IPO, right, we have both the the, the largest factor here in these early stages of production is actually volume and rate. And so as you think about the fact that we have 150,000 units of annualized capacity at our plant in normal Illinois, and instead of, you know, higher volumes, As we had indicated, right, we have the ability to produce 50,000 units this year. Uh, The fact that we're supply constrained to 25,000 units uh, this year is actually the most uh, highly sensitive variable as you think about the impact on our gross margin. And so the supply chain environment is a key factor in regards to uh, the margin rate that we expect to have. Uh, Inflation also has, you know, clearly been an, a factor here as, as well. Uh, Rivian is not alone in, in regards to the overall uh, raw material input prices that, that are obviously impacting uh, EVs across the board and will continue to, to impact the space overall. I think that the important takeaway here is right, our long-term targets are unchanged. We still have tremendous conviction around our ability to deliver Against our 25% uh, long-term gross profit margin, and you know we'll continue to see that opportunity. And importantly, as we think about the the components of that margin, as we've talked about in the past, it's not just the the vehicles we're providing, but importantly, it's the software and services and recurring revenue streams that we can earn uh, post initial purchase that helps us deliver that 25% margin and the opportunity to move. Over time, you know, even beyond those levels. So in, in closing, I, w- I would just say that right, we we feel as though our, our vehicles are competitively priced today. We see tremendous demand uh, in that backdrop. And as we look at the long term, uh, we see really no change to the overall uh, margin trajectory and, and opportunity we have.
1: Great to hear. Thanks so much. And then just lastly, what are your thoughts on that battery and metals cost inflation? How do you think, uh, you know, the increase in the price of nickel, uh, which seems like it could be hopefully in large part temporary, but some of the other metals too. How do you think, uh, that impacts the competitiveness of EVs versus ICE vehicles? Understanding too that ICE vehicles have their own palladium and platinum and catalytic converter inflation problem to worry about as well. Uh, do you have a sense for how these like competing inflationary uh, cost pressures might net out, and what the resulting impact could be on EV sales or EV penetration of total industry sales.
3: Ryan, as you said, we you know we hope the the inflation that we've seen with nickel pricing very recently is short lived. Um, but but the reality is that there's going to continue to be movements around commodity pricing, uh, and it's going to be across a variety of commodities. Um, you know whether you're looking at uh, some of the commodities that go into catalysts, as, as you said, in an ICE vehicle versus, let's say, nickel, and in a battery cell. But I'd also point out, and, and I talked about this earlier, uh, that we're developing a portfolio of battery solutions, inclusive of a lithium iron phosphate and LFP pack. And and one of the nice things about having uh, multiple different chemistries across our portfolio is it, it essentially provides a bit of a hedge around some of the uh, different materials that go into different battery chemistries, in this case, of course, uh, referring to nickel. Uh, but these are this is something we're paying very close attention to. Uh, we fully recognize uh, and fully uh, analyze the implications of, of some of these different materials and the, the pricing of those materials, how that will be translated into a margin structure.
1: Very helpful, thank you.
2: Cool, I don't have anything to add. Next question.
1: Um, thanks, everyone. Um, I guess um, to start, maybe um, can you just give us some color on what you actually saw in terms of cancellations and recouping of those orders from the pricing decision? I mean, I, I know reading message boards can lead you to a dark place, but um, you probably have better information than the rest of us. And then, you know, it's good to hear about the good rate of pre on pre-orders since the pricing uh, change, but. Can you give us some context? Is that in more for the new dual motor standard pack or are, are customers still also opting for the original quad motor?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, on three one um, when we announced the new prices, we did see uh, increased rate of cancellations in that 24-hour period uh, between the uh, price announcement and when we rolled those prices back. But uh, right after the reversal, uh, we got... Um, massive uh, reinstatement requests and uh, more than half of our customers requested to reinstate. Um, So what we basically saw was the demand continues to be very robust and uh, both from a reinstatement point of view as well as from the new new orders point of view as RJ mentioned, um, the rate at which the new orders are coming in is uh, very comparable and similar to the rate at which the orders were coming in before our pricing announcement. So um, you know, we you know it's uh, it sort of validates the pricing model uh, that we had shared with the world, and I think uh, we, have, we continue to be very uh, confident um, at the competitiveness of our product uh, and how it's going to uh, result in the growth of our uh, backlog and demand going forward.
3: Joe, just to add a, a bit to that, I want to be clear that uh, certainly, as you said, you if you look at some of the online uh, surveys. You come out with a very different uh, perspective on what the cancellation rate was. Uh, the decision we took uh, was to ultimately honor the original configuration pricing wasn't due to any uh, cancellations, but rather it was really because we have such a focus on our brand and the relationship we have with customers. There, there, this, wasn't driven by, this wasn't driven by some mass cancellation, but rather the recognition that the brand we're building is the foundation, is the platform upon which ultimately uh, we're going to be selling millions of different vehicles uh, per year, you know, across different vehicle types and, of course, across different markets. And these early customers are are such a critical part of, of what we're building as an organization.
2: Before I begin ranting, I would just like to say that I don't have anything against RJ Scaringe. Actually, I think he's a really capable leader from the outside. I'm not. I don't work with him, and I've never met him or talked to him or anything like that. But from the outside, he seems like a very smart person and a very capable leader. So I'm just going to leave that there, right? And the answer the, fir- the 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 answer the first gentleman gave before RJ got on was a great answer. I have, I have nothing to add to that. But here is where. <laughs> Here's where it frustrates me. RJ mentions that the, the decision to honor the original price configuration had nothing to do with the cancellations and had everything to do with Rivian's relationship to their customers. They decided to honor the price configurations because of the focus on their brand and their relationship with their customers. This is complete nonsense. They misstepped their customers reacted. If the customers, if they, if they made the price hikes and the customers did not cancel the reservations on mass, just maybe one or two canceled them, and Rivian just would have rolled with it. They wouldn't have have well, they wouldn't have gone back and said, you know what, we've decided to honor your original configuration. No, they were going to go back. They were going to take the money, the extra money. They would give the people the updated vehicle, which I think is also you know fair. But they, they wouldn't have rolled it back if nobody had canceled or created any sort of uproar. They would have happily contended, you know, continued on their, with their day and they would have produced, you know, a handful of vehicles this quarter and moved on. If they truly cared about their relationship with their customer, they would have offered existing reservation holders the choice of either sticking with their original configuration with the original price, we're paying a little bit more for the new configuration this decision shows you that they didn't know as much about their customers as they thought they did and i'm going to be honest here the r1t and the r1 customers um the the people who are buying these vehicles they're probably somewhat affluent they can afford to buy these vehicles these aren't cheap vehicles you know uh by and large, these are people that could absorb maybe a sixteen or twenty percent price increase. Okay, where they missed or where they where they misstepped is that they assumed that their parent, the, their customers would just absorb it, and customers don't like feeling like they they're being nickel and dimed to death. And once someone has paid money for a reservation, it feels like a re, it feels like a contract. So either party is welcome to cancel that contract. But on Rivian's side, they have a, a contract with many people. So it's a, a one to many situation. But from a customer point of view, it's a one to one relationship. It's not a one to many. It's one to one. So from Rivian's standpoint, if one customer cancels their, their reservation for any reason, it's not a big deal. They got a bunch of them. But from a customer standpoint, if Rivian changes the terms or cancels a contract, it feels more personal. And it doesn't seem like, at least from the outside, that Rivion took into consideration that people actually don't like feeling like, like they're being taken advantage of. So Rivian raised the prices, they sent out the emails, people canceled. And then a couple of days later, I think it was even the next day, Rivion said, hmm, hold on, we're going to honor these reservations and we're not going to raise the price on you you can't tell me that had nothing to do with the cancellations. Come on now. Let, let's let be real. I mentioned this earlier on in the show, but I, I think it bears, you know, re-mentioning if Rivian just would have gone to these people and said, look at the new shiny thing over here. Look how nice and shiny this is. Do you want to pay a little bit more to get this new shiny thing? I think the people would have happily paid for the shiny thing and they would have praised Rivian for giving them the shiny new toy instead they were like, you got money in your pocket. I'm going to charge you more so I can get that money out of your pocket. That's what it felt like to customers. It felt like they were being taken advantage of. Whether that was Rivian's intention or not, I couldn't tell you I'm not there. But Rivian failed to realize that the bond between Rivian and their customers isn't as strong as the bond between customers and their money. All right. Moving on. Let's get to our next question. And I actually thought this next question was a was a good one. So let's listen in on that.
5: I hate to harp on this. I know mean,
1: you're probably sick of talking about it and thinking about it, but obviously supply chain, this is a pain um, coming through very clearly. I'm just wondering uh, if you take a step back and think about this strategically, philosophically, if you would have known... Uh, everything that you know today, if you would have known this two years three years ago and you were initially formulating your supply chain strategy, what would you have done differently and looking forward to the you know to the plant that you have coming up in Georgia, how will you apply those learnings um to that future product rollout or maybe you won't maybe you don't have any regrets about the way you've approached things but I'd just be interested
5: in hearing how you uh how you address that question thanks.
3: Yeah, it's it's a great question, Alex, and we, we certainly have spent time saying how do we how to avoid some of these supplier constraints going forward. There's a couple of things I'd note here, and um, uh, in the context of semiconductors, one of the one of the challenges is we have a supply demand imbalance as an industry, and as a result of that, uh, suppliers are providing uh, you know, com, you know, platforms or components on an allocation basis and those allocations are largely being set as some multiple of last year's demand. And of course what we've seen is um you know all the you know sources of demand all the OEMs in this case are asking largely for more than the need. And so the the semiconductor suppliers are then developing their own allocation models that essentially reference what um what they believe the real true demand is. So the challenge we have in this regard is we have to we, we don't have something to look back to, to say, what was Q1 of 2021 like in terms of our demand profile? And with each of these semiconductor providers, we need to give them the confidence that we're capable of ramping. And of course, each semiconductor supplier asks, well, how, you know, if I'm semiconductor supplier X, how is semiconductor supplier Y doing? And wanting to sort of make sure that um, their rate of supply and the allocation that they're providing to us is, is roughly equal to the rate of allocation that's coming from other semiconductor suppliers. So it's a bit of um, almost like a game of schedule chicken, if you will, between these different suppliers. And so we've we've taken the approach of being very transparent um, and uh, to, I guess to be explicit to being very aggressive with these suppliers to make sure we're driving them. And it's why I said earlier, uh, for any of those suppliers that happen to be on this call, uh, we're going to continue to push very hard. And that's that's critical for us as we go into next year. And as we think about Future launches will have the benefit of, of, of having proven demand and proven output. Now, with all that said, uh, our next generation network architecture that I referred to before, uh, actually helps simplify this problem where we are consolidating a number of our ECUs and we're doing that in close partnership with the semiconductor suppliers where as we source these, we're basically making sure, uh, that this doesn't happen again. You know, so there's, the, the way we're you know setting up the contracts, the way we're negotiating pricing, the way we're negotiating the purchase process, um, we're ensuring that the things that we previously treated as as more of a commodity, we now treat as a strategic sourcing agreement, and an agreement in which uh, we won't have these kinds of surprises that we've just gone through. Now, uh, with with that said, around semiconductors, uh, I'd say the other area uh, that we've you know as, as we go forward, that, that I think we've learned from here, is sometimes these macro economic environments are, are just hard to plan for. And the, the need to take an approach of, of being very hands-on and, you know, if, if previously you would look at the supply base and say it's a trust but verify, and maybe, uh, you know, there's 80% trust, 20% verify. I think for, for the industry at large, certainly for ourselves, we're taking a much more heavy-handed approach to the supplier ramp-up process, where we'll have folks on site much earlier in the process, making sure the suppliers are hiring the teams they need to hire, setting up their supply chains, so that's their tier twos and associated tier threes appropriately, and, and being very much more uh, heavy handed in that audit and ramp up process. And so we certainly are doing that now. And I referred to it before, but we have a team of people dedicated uh, to being on site and to working very closely with these suppliers. Uh, we're going to be increasingly aggressive on that as we go forward because we do view this as as a critical core
2: competency to make sure future ramps occur as fast as possible. All right. I actually thought this was not only a great question, and I, I would actually like to see someone ask this question at every earnings call doesn't matter the business every earnings call what would you have done differently knowing what you know now go one of the things i would have liked them to cover and they didn't specifically the gentleman who asked the question didn't was specifically asking about supply chain but i would have liked um, rj to go into some of the things that they would have done in terms of production improvements uh, rather than to completely focus on suppliers but again um, I, i can't fault the question it was a great question great answer Next up, we're going to hear about component pricing and inflation. They're going to talk a lot about commodity, commodity pricing. I didn't know what commodity pricing was. So just as a quick Google search, I'll pass this on to you. I still don't know what it is, but it's a rational pricing model based on the present value of future convenience yields of physical commodity holdings. So with that, let's listen to the clip.
1: Understood. Thank you. For my second question was on the materials uh in- in inflationary environment. i uh, hoping to better understand that as well. Um, can-, can you talk about to what extent uh, you- you've been able to – Lock in any of uh, any of the pricing, uh, you know, either in terms of financial hedges or you know, f- fixed price contracts. Uh, you know, I think typically in the industry, there's a lot of uh, commodities pass through, and so it, it sounds like Rivian would be exposed to the higher materials costs if if they, if they do in fact uh, stay at, uh, at current levels. But uh, hoping to better understand, if you've been able to offset any of that, thank you. It, it,
3: it's a good question, Mark. I think as, as we think about structuring, and as we I should say as, as we structured. Uh, Our supplier contracts, um, you know, leading into our launches across all three products, the R1T, the R1S, and and the EDV, uh, a lot of those contracts, uh, you know, are tied to a a component or a part or a system at a fixed price. So there's not a a raw material pass-through. Of course, there are some contracts that have raw material pass-throughs, and it's really dependent on the type of contract and the type of component or system. Um, The component or systems were a vast majority of the price of that item. Is, is carried by the commodity price. Uh, there may be those pass-throughs, but a lot of systems, most of the price is actually carried in the value-add on top of the raw material. So take, for example, a headlight as an example. Uh, much of the headlight cost is actually the processing of the materials as opposed to the raw materials themselves. Now, exceptions to that and, and examples where, where that's a bit different, of course, um, and we've talked about this already, uh, really are around the battery cell. And, and so we see this with nickel, it's one of the reasons Uh, We're so focused on nickel. And I think, you know, I'm sure uh, all of our colleagues uh, across the industry are also very focused on this because, you know, those types of contracts typically do have some level of some level of commodity pricing baked in.
2: All right. We're going to leave it here because it goes into some more stuff that I don't think is important. Um, I hope you found this interesting. I actually found it to be fairly interesting, even though it felt like there was a lot of double speak. Um, during the the presentation. But in general, I love doing earnings earnings calls. It it takes a lot of time. Um, But beyond that, I I enjoy every second of it. So I'm actually recording this on a Friday. It is, as of this time right now, it is 640. I started in the morning recording and it is now 640. I had other things to do in between that time, but I'm actually going to get the show out on on a friday so i'm excited uh patreon listeners will get it in the next hour or so um everybody else will get it on at twelve o. Oh, wait 12:15 on saturday morning so arizona time so yeah i'm i'm, I'm really happy that, that that i actually got it out on time this week uh little wins um actually i feel like this is a big one anyway i'm rambling So you can email me Bodie, B-O-D-I-E at 918digital.com. You can find me on Twitter at 918digital. I hope you all have a wonderful week. Uh, Next week's show is going to be a little bit shorter. We had a couple of long shows in a row and I I need a a little time to recover from these uh, marathon shows. So all right, everybody, thank you very much for listening again. Have a wonderful week.